Welcome to Awakening Genius. This is a podcast and community dedicated to your inspiration and your elevation so that you can live fully creatively expressed. I'm your guide, Dijon. Thanks for being here. Stay tuned in to get lifted. Before we get started today, I wanted to invite y'all into something very special. If you resonate with this energy that we're expressing here, then this is something that you will probably enjoy. It's an opportunity to deepen with our community and expand your current network of creatives. We now have a program here at Awakening Genius that is designed to help you embody the infinite creative potential that you have. We all have equal amounts of creative possibility living within us, and it's our work to embody it and ground it so that we can consciously co-create a world together. Now, some of us don't identify with the label artist, but being an artist is not about whether you express yourself through a specific medium, like painting or drawing. Being an artist is the level of presence you hold when you do anything. That's why an original painting is infinitely more valuable than a print because the artist actually interacted with that painting and infused it with their energy and consciousness. Art is an energetic transmission, and it's not limited to the things we traditionally think of as art. When your grandmother cooks you a meal and infuses it with love, that is artistry in action. So inside of the Awakening Genius container, You learn how to cultivate high vibrational energy into the temple of your body through yogic practices. And then you will practice wielding that energy through creative exercises with community and play shops led by a diverse range of creatives. So you can express your artistry however you choose to. If that sounds intriguing to you and you wanna learn more and you wanna deepen with us, go visit www.awakeninggenius.club The link is also in the show notes, so you can access it there. We're looking forward to building with you, and now let's get into the episode. originally connected with him many years back and did a podcast on another network I have called Souls of Society and he really blew me away with his story of self-knowledge and becoming a Jedi and getting tapped into different cosmic and galactic realms and he's a brother that just has a lot of wisdom and insight to share so we reconnected and I wanted for him to come on and share his wisdom on the things he's working on one of which being unified physics and just his different perspectives on consciousness. So thank you for being here, Adam. I'm really grateful. Mm, Thanks, Dijon. It's great to see you again. It's an honor to be back on your show, my friend. Yeah. And it feels very timely because 
as I was mentioning to you before, when we did the podcast in 2015, you mentioned a certain initiative being ready to be taken to the next step at 2020. And although it wasn't specifically our reconnection, I took it that way as another initiation of consciousness. So I'm excited Mm -hmm. to hear what you've been up to and how that can make me and everyone else wiser. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you again at this particular juncture of the time clock. It feels like the world has shifted quite uh, drastically since the last time we spoke. And my personal life is no different. Many huge transformations and changes. Living in Boulder, Colorado here now, and it's beautiful, gorgeous landscape surrounded by nature. And having been traveling very extensively for the last, most of the last two years leading up until March, I was building an encryption system with a team in Southern California, which I'll share more about that with you, and traveling and speaking at lots of conferences on unified physics and consciousness and the bridges between those things and technology. And so when March came around, it really gave me a lot more breathing room to be home and to go a lot deeper into my work in unified physics. When I was young, and some of this is in the other story that I shared with you for Souls of Society, and I invite your listeners to check that out if they want to learn more about this. But when I was a teenager, I came into contact with this very direct experience of what I like to call the human energy fields or the human energy body, which is a field of life force of energy, which is translated by many different traditions with different terms whether you call it chi or prana or ki or vital force. And I was initiated into a hunt for the truth around this field and why it's missing from our education system, why it's missing from our general societal understanding at a whole. If it's so dynamic and present and and obvious to the explorer who seeks it out, and has been for people who have done that deeper work on themselves for thousands of years, why is this a missing part of our society? And that trail led me to some major questions in physics and down a road of studying the sort of leading edge thinking in terms of how the universe is made, what it is, how it's structured, and how everything works. And what I realized was that there's, there's a huge divide in the physics world. And that divide came into being in the early 1900s. And it was a real, really, the divide pivots around the issue of the ether. Because up until the turn of the 1900s, and really Michelson and Morley and then Einstein's first paper, the ether was a fundamental part of physics and science. We looked at it like as we got to know fire, air, earth, and water, or as we now translate them to be thermodynamics, aerodynamics, hydrodynamics, and geodynamics or geophysics, the ether was always seen as this kind of fundamental field of force that backs up these energies and gives rise to the different dynamics that we see in fire or heat, for example, or in water. And there was a lot of problems in the past few centuries because the church kept trying to really get involved and take control over that area of study because they're saying there's this underlying thing that gives rise to stuff that must be the domain of God. So that's the domain of the church, which means you got to go through us. 
And that was a major struggle for scientists throughout the later Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and leading all the way up into the 1800s. And finally, a pair of people, Nicholson and Morley, devised an experiment to try to measure if the ether exists and if the ether is actually there. And they set up this tabletop experiment where they are shining a light through a series of mirrors that's creating like a little waveform refraction pattern on a plate. And they figured that if there is an ether coming from a space outside the Earth's atmosphere and the Earth is traveling through it, then that ether would cause little distortions in this light wave field on their little tabletop experiment. And interestingly enough, Mickelson and Morley were pretty well convinced that like there's probably an ether, this makes sense, it, it just makes sense that there is, but their experiment was unable to detect it. And so from that solution, it was believed that the ether just doesn't exist, it's just gone, there's nothing there. And this is a huge problem because Interestingly enough, Mickelson and Morley never actually had the thought that maybe the surface of the Earth and the atmosphere of the Earth are actually moving with the device that they're experimenting on, right? Like that the ether would be moving with the Earth, that space is moving with the surface of the Earth. It's not just that the flat area of the ground is pressing itself through outer space, and in which case you can't measure it. And recently, we've actually done the same exact experiment, but when you tilt the device so that it's aligned with the gravitational plane, we actually do detect ether. Now, Einstein also supposedly disproved the ether through special relativity, but 10 years later, he wrote general relativity, and his teacher Lorenz said, Einstein, you just proved the ether exists. And sure enough, general relativity, the most foundational theory of astrophysics that we have today, requires that an ether exists. Because, as Einstein said in his own words, in his own paper, which was never publicized, never got out there, and most people never even knew it existed, he said that you can't have the mechanics of space-time without an underlying ether. In other words, space-time has mechanical properties. Otherwise, light wouldn't bend around a planet. Otherwise, we wouldn't have black holes. Otherwise, all of these stellar phenomena that we see, that we witness, would not exist unless space itself had a tangible pattern, structure, energy to it. And for the past hundred years, over and over again, there have been different things that have shown that there's this massive underlying field and that there's this whole space that we're missing in our science. But the division in physics has gotten further and further from the space of the study of the big, the relativity field of astrophysics and stars and planets, and the study of the small, of the quantum world and the quantum geometry. And it's interesting because it's believed that quantum physics shows us more about consciousness. But embedded in general relativity and the nature of gravitational fields themselves is this underlying field of ether, which is related to how consciousness operates. So the splits have been going in two different directions when the underlying missing piece on both sides, the underlying key that links them back together, is this fundamental field, is this ether. 
And so I've spent over 20 years doing the research, the studies, the mathematics work, the geometry work to actually understand what this field is and why it's so important and how it can be applied to our lives. And that's really the heart of the journey that I've been on. And one that I think by nature naturally takes you on a road of self-transformation and growth and leads you to a deeper level of discovery of yourself, of the universe, and of all things. Exactly. Yeah, here's the thing. All the problems in quantum mechanics, and there's tons of problems, from the lack of explanation for the strong force to the complete lack of understanding of what W and Z bosons are that cause the weak force phenomena, to, you could go on and on, to color force, to why quarks never exist outside of protons. Wow, it's <laughs> a lot of information. So I'm trying to process everything you were saying. And so the unified field is like the external layer, almost like the, ma the macro layer. The quantum field is like the micro layer and the ether is what connects kind of the two. Am I interpreting that correct? And what the color confinement force actually is or what it's made of. I mean, we can experiment and we can find certain things about the universe, but our theory that backs up what those things are and defines what those things are is only based on the constraints of what we know already and what we think is possible, right? This is like the ultimate challenge. And so underlying almost every one of these mysteries in quantum mechanics, and there's a ton of them. And, and in fact, some of the smartest scientists in the world have said that the standard model of quantum mechanics is broken, fundamental. And the reason why that is, is because they're all missing this piece of this fundamental field. And the struggle to find that missing piece was so great that when Peter Higgs and his team proposed this thing that they call the God particle, this fundamental Higgs field and the Higgs boson, which some of your readers may have, or listeners may have heard of before or seen it on magazines, the God particle, the Higgs boson, the search for the source of the universe. So they came up with this thing as if it was their own idea that there's this field and that this field just can determine suddenly here or there whether or not there's mass or whether or not there's energy. Like literally, oh, the Higgs boson must be there because now suddenly there's mass. And it's, it's a total, it's actually attempting in, innately to reconnect quantum mechanics to the ether, but it's done so in a way that completely throws out logic and classical mechanics and like the basics of geometry and ignores all of the work that's been done on the ether for thousands of years, from Pythagoras to Plato to you name it. We have so much of a lineage in this space, and now suddenly the, the guy names it the Higgs field, and now we think that's what it is. But it's not that. It's much deeper than that. And so the real issues in quantum mechanics actually get solved by understanding that space is an energetic field that's in a state of super high tensegrity. It's like a crystal. And that crystal is trying to balance out 
its own geometry all the time. The old saying in thermodynamics, everything's always trying to get to equilibrium. It's trying to get to the lowest energy state, right? Lowest energy state is a mistake when we say that because it's not actually a low energy state. In fact, when something goes back into equilibrium, it now goes into a high potential state. It's not actually that its energy gets lower, it's that its energy is now distributed, so it's in a state of balance. You can think of it like, there's a lot of ways, if you've ever built a dome at Burning Man, it's a great example, or at a festival, you've got these metal pipes and the bars, and you're trying to stick them together, and man, it's really hard to get them together and get them to stay stable until you make triangles. Once you make a triangle, it seems like it's just solid now. It seems like there's no energy now that can move it. So it's got less active energy, but now that it's in a triangle, it creates structural tensegrity. So now it actually has the potential energy to support the rest of the structure. And, and this is really the flip on the entire theory of thermodynamics that we've gone down, which is this idea that the whole universe is constantly burning out. It's burning away. It's entropic, right? So everything's always becoming more chaotic. Everything will always break down more and more, right? And some have taken that all the way to the idea that eventually the entire universe and all the stars are going to burn out and it's going to be one big freezing cold death. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at the universe and I look at what we know about it and what we understand about it, that seems completely backwards because somehow we got from a point of tons of chaotic energy all over the place and giant gas clouds, the way we see nebulas and things like that, and somehow a giant gas cloud nebula formed our star. And around that star formed all of these planets. And, around, and on those planets, suddenly all these different structures have formed all the way down to every kind of life that we see on Earth. And all of that has led to this highly complex, extremely ordered structure that is our bodies. And then even to that, there's this consciousness that is inherent and embodied in this that's now creating order and coherence and developing things, whether that's by building a house or crafting a piece of art or making a meal. And yes, there's both a destruction process. So some things you mix together and you can't get back the way they were before. When you put cream in your coffee or sugar in it or whatever, you're not going to be able to get that sugar back out very easily. So the order of the sugar has changed. But does that mean that the coffee is more chaos than the sugar? Or is the coffee actually a higher state of order now that's merged the qualities of the sugar and the cream and the coffee itself into something new? Are we as human beings and trees and animals more chaos than the roiling, exploding gases of star destruction? I would say yes. I would say that we are, I would say that we are more ordered. We are more complex. 
and that there is something that we could call syntropy, a force of literally how things come into greater and greater pattern and structure over time that counterbalances this force of entropy and in fact is so much more powerful than the entropic destructive force that without this syntropy, we would not have water cycles. We would not have trees. We would not have a living environment around a planet. And we would not have these incredibly amazing physical bodies that we inhabit. Okay. Yeah. I'm tracking you to some degree, I feel. And, and it's your understanding and, and knowledge and terminology in this world is obviously, I'm just a layman. So it's on a much different level. But I guess what I'm curious of is how this maybe applies to your day-to-day -day life or what application does this have to just an everyday person in a way that they can apply it or integrate in some way? Yeah, well, let's, let's bridge it across to society and culture and life, right? Because we see the same divide that we see in physics, this separation of the whole from the part all the time. We see this idea that we're a nation, but we forget the part that we're actually all a nation made of community. We recognize that we're all on earth, but we're all divided into different nations. So there's always this sort of interplay between the divisions of the micro and the wholeness of the macro. And this process of getting to know our sovereignty as individuals, who we are individually, like the essence that's me, and getting to know the who am I that is collective, the us, the my family, my community, my state, my nation, my, my world, all of these are like collective scalar shells of awareness. And I have to balance between the two. I can be whoever I want, I can do whatever I want, I can choose whatever I want, and I also need to account for the fact that my choices are going to affect other people. And I, I see this challenge arise a lot in the space of politics because there's often a really strong divide between people saying, I believe that this is what should be, and I believe that this is what should be, right? So if this person thinks this way and this person thinks this way, obviously they're not gonna be able to resolve that issue. But when you break it down more, what you tend to actually see is that some people's political motivation is more oriented to what's gonna solve problems right now in this moment, which usually looks like having more money, having a smaller tax bill, being able to ensure that your business is getting the support it needs to grow, make sure your car's got gas, so let's make sure that the oil keeps flowing. It's solving the issue of the right now, what you need right now. And then other political perceptions are actually about the collective need. So that right now need is often more individual. It's making sure I'm good. But there's other political perspectives that say, let's look at the longer result of that. Because if we just continue to do the oil thing, look what's going to happen to the planet and we have kids and what's going to happen to our kids and the environment for the kids. If we want to have, let's say, better business and better money and that kind of thing, which serves the individual and better economy, then let's fund education. Because education over the long term 
is going to improve the ability of more people to create more jobs and more economy. So it's not that the short-term perspective is wrong or that the long-term perspective is wrong. They're just two different perspectives on two lenses of whether you're focused on the individual's needs right now in the moment or whether you're focused on the long-term needs of society and community, etc. And in reality, we really need a fusion of both, right? Because you can't like you can't really affect long-term change if you're not good in yourself. So you do need some level of sustainability in the moment. And we're definitely not going to get to a better place for our kids and the generations to come unless we think long-term and unless we look at that longer scope. And so what I'm really getting at is that this relationship between the quantum and what quantum actually means is the countable right? The division, the individualization, the particle, so to speak, right? We have to resolve this difference between the particle and the needs of the particle, which is you, and the wave, which is actually the field that you're a part of, which affects everybody. And everybody, and we're building this bridge, and that bridge is really about better understanding the fact that we are both individuals and we are immersed in a collective field that influences each other. And you actually can't get around that. One is always going to affect the other. They are one and the same. Totally. Yeah, I totally understand where you're, what you're saying. And I personally try to make my individual participation in life contribute to the collective. That's why I do podcasts and not just have conversations because I see you as someone of value and that I can learn from and that I can receive mentorship from, but I feel like the collective can receive value from that as well. So I try to have these types of conversations and be in ways that have value on an ongoing basis for everybody. And that's personally how I try to do that. So in your study with your company, like how does the work your company do implement that? theory that you were yeah. just saying. Yeah, sure. So Superluminal Systems, our work since 2013 has been to build academies and learning systems. So the first academy that I built is called the Resonance Academy for Unified Physics. And I had gotten Nassim some significant funding and he had set up a lab on Kauai. And so I asked the foundation, since I got the foundation many millions of dollars, I asked them for a grant to build an education platform because I'd figured out the keys to doing it. And I had two of the board members of the foundation join me. We built this company together and, and then built this academy, which I wanted to offer back to the foundation, the Resonance Science Foundation, as it's known now in order to support this nonprofit's ability to be sustainable and really fulfill its mission as an educational organization. And that academy, every part of prototyping it and building it out was really about how do we apply these keys in how consciousness gets to know itself over time to the study of physics and the universe. How do we actually imprint the reflection of what we've learned about nature and about 
sacred geometry and universal patterns and ancient cultures and actually imprint that into a tool set and a, a learning pathway that would give people literally the arc of transition that they need to not only better understand their relationship with reality and life and the universe, but also really get the value that ancient cultures have left us and where we're going in the future. What does the technology look like? What's the future that we're heading towards? So that you're highly prepared to face life and you simply just have a better language for understanding the dynamics of life and the boundary conditions in it. Because the beauty of unified physics is that literally every single facet of your life can be addressed through that lens. When you have a holistic lens to see how energy at small scales and large scales are interacting and all the way down to what's happening at the proton and how it works and how the geometry is built and what's going on inside your body, your cellular matrix and your DNA, all of these things are interconnected to our, our study of life. And so that was really setting a foundation for what the future of education can look like. And after building that and writing a considerable portion of the Unified Science course, which is free, if you go to resonancescience.org, you can check it out, sign up for the Unified Science course. If you want to know my parts, I wrote all of module three and most of module four in that se sequence, as well as a little bit of module six, which is the module that's about future technology, which I'll talk about more in a second. And then I went to build the Guardian Alliance. And the Guardian Alliance is a school for self-mastery. It's what my students lovingly call Jedi training school. And it really is that. It's martial arts, metaphysics, body-mind studies. It's all the other side of the unified physics, the deep personal experience of energy and force and psychic ability and astral travel and magic and all of these things that many people think are just fantasies or not real or like occult stuff that doesn't actually exist but that in fact actually do exist and have for thousands of years and that there are very simple practices that we can do to, for example, awaken our ability to do lucid dreaming or to be able to remote view around the curve when you're driving fast up through the mountains so that you can tell if there's a car coming up there or get grounded enough in your body that when you're you're walking and somebody in a crowd slams into you that you don't fall on your face, that you actually adjust your weight and turn and receive the force and transmit it a different direction so that it doesn't overcome the center of your body. Or go into a situation where you're in a deeply intimate space or a sexual space that maybe you've never been in before and you have emotional discomfort or trauma coming up, and you need to actually be able to learn how to navigate those energies in your body and breathe through the trauma, breathe through the fear, move through whatever blame, shame patterns maybe you were ingrained with from your childhood, and actually be able to meet that moment with the deepest presence and bliss and creative force. So that's what the Guardian Alliance is about. It's really practical skills for your day-to-day -day life that leverage these deeper capacities and abilities that are literally built into us. We just never have had anyone teach us how to use them because they're completely missing from our society. And a lot of that is because of religious persecution, unfortunately. And, and that's just the only reason 
that any of that stuff was ever persecuted by Christianity, for example, in the first place is because the Christianity at one point in time was deeply woven in with the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire was working its way across Europe and trying to take control of all of Europe. And so what was the best way to try to take control of all of these tribes and cultures would be to wipe out their traditions. Same exact thing has happened in this continent when the white people came across and decided that this was going to be their land. So we're just going to like either wipe out these indigenous traditions or shove them into their, you know, little concentration camps. And that's where their culture will be is like in their own little world. And we'll make the rest of the country our space, our world, our place. It happened to my people, the Irish people, when the English came over. And a lot of them were Christianized. And my people's Druidic traditions and traditions in terms of working with the earth and working with consciousness and speaking to the weather and all of these things, which are innate, beautiful gifts of humanity, were made evil. And so there's a huge reclamation we're doing right now. And Black Lives Matter is a huge part of that. It's fucking reclaiming the power and the magic and the beauty of the African people and, and the resonance of their light and their culture. And it's, it blows my mind that still some people can't process the fact that there, there needs to be a reclamation of these cultures from our past. There needs to be an honoring. There needs to be a, a facing of the trauma that has been caused on this planet. And the only way to do that is to just embrace it with open arms and know that you don't know everything, right? You've got to listen. You've got to receive from the gifts of wisdom of these elders that are out there speaking right now, of the people who are standing up for their tribes, for their people all over the world and saying, hey, we matter too. This is important. This is important. Let's look at this. So anyway, the Guardian Alliance I created the Guardian Alliance to support movements like that. And it doesn't have to do so in a loud and noisy way. A lot of times it's the subtle way. It's the way of all of the students and the people actually just going out there and learning more and getting behind those movements of change and showing up and bringing their love and their life force. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. I was intrigued by it when you mentioned it the first time we conversed and it still sounds like a great thing to be able to realize that true power is receptivity and like being able to take in and process energies and multiple perspectives so that you can integrate and be a contributing member of society so i'm glad to hear you say that's a major pillar of it yeah yeah for sure is, is it an online community or is it a place mm -hmm. where people come and meet or? Yeah, the whole academy is online right now. We will probably go back into doing retreats and events like we've done adventures to castles in Germany before and things like that. We'll probably do more active stuff like that again soon. But for now, it's all automated courses online. You can go in, take them at your own pace. There's like a, a seasonal membership you can get where you get all the courses and you can just take them at your own pace and go through them all you want and just pay monthly or every season. And we, this whole journey of creating these learning systems for me was really about developing a foundation for a new kind of social web 
in general. Because from the beginning, I've seen the major potential challenges and issues of platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Whenever you have a massive centralized owned silo structure where they have literally complete control over what happens with the data. It's automatically extremely dangerous. It's like you go into a giant room and there's like a group of five people and there's, ton there's tons of people in the room, but there's five people who are responsible for relaying all the messages between all the people in that room. And those five people, let's say, maybe have an agenda, right? So now you're trying to share all these messages with your friends, but you've always got to give it to one of those five people. And that five, one of those five people that when they take that message, they may or may not take it to the other people that you want them to give it to. They may not. They may only give it to certain people over here and not these people over here. And they may do that very strategically to further their agenda. And this is a natural part of any time you have a centralized social network that allows things like throttling. And interestingly enough, beyond even political motivation or agenda, the nature of the social media market itself is broken because the social media market is designed around advertising, right? So if you look up like the market of social media, which is how much money Facebook makes and Twitter makes and Pinterest makes, all the metrics that you get generally are based on their ability to sell advertising. But if you can control the, the slots of data, like if you can actually choose how far a post goes or not, then you're naturally incentivized to say, okay, sure, you've got a nonprofit and all that, but if you want to reach the million followers that you have, you're going to have to pay us money to reach those people, which is an interesting concept because you had to build the followers in the first place, right? So you, that means you had to put lots of energy into their platform in order to get that following. This happened to me with Unify because I'm a co-founder of Unify. When we built the Unify Facebook page over the first year, there was a point where we got over a million followers and we get all, got all of those followers through viral videos and posts and like campaigns and doing our work to serve humanity. And once we hit that million followers, there was, it wasn't very long after that. It was very shortly after that. We were literally growing by like thousands of followers a day. The curve was just amazing. And all of a sudden, all the followers overnight just stopped. It was literally like we were having this massive viral reach, and then all of a sudden, it just stopped. Like we just hit a ceiling. And it took two weeks for my colleague, Mark Healy, who was working with us at that time, to actually get a hold of somebody at Facebook to talk to them about it. And they said, oh, we've just implemented this new business support program. So we're absolutely here to help you and ensure your business continues to grow. All you have to do is pay us $50 to $100 a day, and we'll ensure you keep getting the reach that you've had. And Mars, what? Are you kidding me? Like, this, what do you mean? This is like our viral, this is our reach. This is organic. Like, we're not, it's not paid reach. This is just people sharing with people. They're like, oh yeah, we understand. We understand that you just, we just have a new program and all you need to do is get on board with us and pay us and whatever. 
I literally went to use their new boost post feature when that came out, which was uh, sometime later after this, because we basically just gave them the finger and we're like, no, we're not doing that. Like we're not. And so the Facebook page literally just stayed at the same level after that for a long time. And I finally went to go boost a post and the cost was going to be $500 for one post to reach 10% of our followers. So in other words, to reach 100,000 people and we had over a million followers, they were going to charge us $500. Now, it's not quite that bad now, but I just went and tested this the other day and it was going to cost me $250 to reach 5 to 10%. So half the price, but that's for one post. And of course, if your entire income system, the profits you're making that you're trying to grow for your investors because you're a publicly traded company and you're trying to just make sure the shareholders are all happy and you're just pumping profits all the time, yeah, of course what you're going to do is you're going to cut people's growth off and you're going to say, oh, you can't get any bigger unless you pay us. And then they pay and they get a little bigger. Oh, you can't get any bigger unless you pay us. And, and it's a game. It's, it's a game. And the other thing is by creating terms of service where they own and control your data, now they also have the capacity to sell that data to the highest bidder, which incentivizes unethical data collection practices. Because the more data they have, the more money they can make by selling that data. So that entire system is broken because it's based on philosophy and based on economic models that are inherently bad for the consumer. They're inherently bad for people. Literally, we're using systems for our social connection to each other and we're trusting them with our lives, our data, our friends, our connection to grandma and all of that stuff when literally they're, they have the worst ethics of any companies we've seen in a long time besides oil and gas. And so this has become a huge part of my work. And I've been prototyping and working on a new system that could replace this type of infrastructure for 17 years at this point. But most of it has been small level prototypes, building out the learning systems and prototyping with that, testing out different visualization systems and models, and supporting and cheering on the guys building distributed web infrastructure, which is think of it as like the kind of server infrastructure where you could communicate and connect with other people all around the world directly, peer to peer, with no mediator. So you don't need a Facebook in between, you just literally can connect and exchange directly with them. The best examples of stuff like that that we have are things like BitTorrent, where the more people download a movie, they all become seeds. And now because there's more seeds, you can actually get that movie faster because more people have a piece of it all over the place. And that was a great founding model for this kind of structure, but it's needed to evolve a lot. And so this year, I'm after having built this new encryption system with my partner, Robert Grant, over at Crown Sterling, we now have a encryption system that's not based on prime numbers anymore because we figured out that prime numbers are predictable, that there's patterns to them, 
that literally the private keys for any public key crypt cryptography that's based on prime numbers, like you can literally find the private keys hidden in the one over X of the public key. Like it's so vulnerable, it's ridiculous. And I have a new paper about this that we're not releasing yet, but we will be releasing very soon. And so we've built an entirely new encryption system based on irrational numbers and some of these unified physics principles. And we're applying it to creating, I'm applying it with my team um, at Superluminal through a project called Core Network to building a fully distributed secure social web. And my special sauce that I'm adding on top of that is that the entire thing's visual interface is basically like Iron Man's system. So for the first time, it's the real gesture reactive, eventually, AR, VR, web, mobile system that looks and feels like that futuristic interface that we've seen in all these movies for so long that's never been able to be real. But now it is. And now well, that sounds pretty cool. I know a lot of people would be interested to use that. Yeah, it's an interesting thing you're talking about because it's, I don't, enjoy the experience on Facebook. And I know that it's problematic for a lot of reasons. And just to sit in their shoes a little bit, I don't agree with the ethics of that data collection, the stuff you're talking about, but the idea that they should be compensated or that anyone that's providing that type of service should be compensated does make sense to me. It's if you had a, a donation based class or offering, and you allowed it to be run for 10 years before you charge anyone, for, then it would make sense that they would be like, hey, we've been putting in 10 years worth of effort and obviously there's value in it because you use it. Um, sure. I just think that the way they went about it was off-putting and nefarious. And yeah, that's an issue. And it's hard because they have so much market share and it's become such a staple of society. So it's interesting to hear about alternative ways of relating and connecting. And I'm, I personally am looking for new ways to use it because it's just the way that there's so much on it. It's just so messy and overwhelming. And even the subtle difference between Facebook and Instagram, right? Like Facebook, I feel like literally is a place where people dump everything like opinions, groups, events. It's just too much. And on Instagram, I feel like at least people have, a bit more of a focus around what they're sharing and what their intention is. It's a bit cleaner. Yeah. But even that can be overwhelming. But yeah, there's a book I got called Digital Minimalism, mm -hmm. which is just about being a digital minimalist and really being intentional about what you're using in the digital space and why you're using it and focusing just more of your attention on your physical reality and then using these things as a tool to, to support your physical reality. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm wanting to shift towards. But if people are making things with the intention that it seems like you're making them, then I'm excited to see how they develop. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Dijon. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with creating a good business model to be able to support people's social connection and platforms and things like that. But when the business model is centralized around throttling people's reach in order to force them to pay for advertising and marketing, it's inherently ethically wrong. And so there's other business models that actually work great and, and plenty of companies that 
go by those models and use those models, the LMS marketplace is one thing, transaction-based, any kind of transaction-based model is great because that's innately going to be supporting the people that are providing the actual service. Even structures like Uber and Lyft and things like that, they're creating huge job markets, they're supporting people and providing a service, and they're making a great cut on top of it, and they're making great money. But everybody loves the service because both the people getting the service love it because it makes transportation more accessible, and the people providing the service love it because they're making money for it, and they have a job for it. So the, and this is like really the key to supporting I think collective social growth and, and experience in the right way is to look at what the needs of the social space are. Like what are the needs that people have to connect with each other, to earn money, to establish clear perception of how much they trust each other or not. All of those kinds of things that innately support, as you say, like our physical experience, right? that actually augment our physical experience with each other, those are the kinds of things that should form the foundation of any new social system. Because you want to really build that new system on the natural philosophy and ethics of how we innately operate with each other and what we do in real life, not just in the digital world. Right. And, and how the two play together. 100%. Yeah, these are very important conversations to be having, and we are in our infancy as a species with this new technology, so it makes sense that we don't have it quite ironed out yet, but yeah, it's definitely a huge conversation because everybody's using it and not always in the most intentional or life-affirming ways, so thank you for the work that you're doing. It's my pleasure, and uh, yeah, if any of your listeners want to find out more about that particular project, they can go to core.network and just jump on the mailing list there. We're running in stealth mode still right now. So there's only a little bit that you're going to get a glimpse at, but more is coming soon. And right now I'm in in some process and talks with Epic Games. So there's a lot moving right now towards bringing this to fruition. And hopefully we'll have some bigger updates on that front soon. Wonderful. I know that we're about out of time here. Is it okay if I ask you one more question? Sure. Okay. This is just more about you as a human being because regardless of what we've been talking about over our interactions, I always feel a very high throttle of like passion in your being, which I think is oftentimes the most important thing that people are showing up like with vibrancy for life. So I'm just wondering how you maintain that and what your source of that is throughout all the things that happen in life. Yeah. Honestly, purpose, focusing on my purpose. And there's a, there's a bigger arc to that because a lot of people are like, what is my purpose? I don't know my purpose. How do I focus on that to help me get inspired every day? That's step one is get to know yourself. And step one is really getting more deeply in touch with the journey that you've been on. Because I guarantee like every single thing that's ever happened to you in your life that's led you to this moment is connected in some way to your purpose. It's connected to what you're here to do. And if you're able to look at that even in a longer span by doing past life regression, work in in history and exploring your ancestry, if that makes sense to you, going deeper into the ley line of your being, your 
the ancestral line of your being, the soul line of your being, the essence of who you are through time as you emerge to now, the stream of the past actually informs you and fuels you into what you want to create in the future. It, because it contains all the wisdom. It contains the, the things that went wrong, the things that could be better, the things that the mistakes you've made in the past, and exactly what your gifts are and how you can apply those gifts to helping people. So it's really worth it to do that deep inner work and to get to know yourself. Because once you've got that flag and you know what you're supposed to do, that it, it doesn't matter. You can have totally off days. You can wake up feeling super tired. I do. Sometimes I get massive downloads at four in the morning and like, I'm like, okay, stop. I need some sleep. Like, and yet like even on the hardest days, all it takes is just sitting down and I'm like, okay, now I'm going to focus on my work, my purpose work. And every time it's exciting and it's awesome because there's this, oh, it's just so amazing. It's so amazing to get to serve the world and to do what you know you're meant to do. It feels fantastic. And it will see you through whatever challenges and difficulties you're having in your life. Thank you. Purpose. Yes, yeah. definitely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to share what you're working on and share how you maintain your sense of equilibrium to do all the deep work that they're doing. It's very inspiring. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dijon. Great to be here with you, buddy. And uh, yeah, let's connect again sometime soon. Definitely. And I'll get all the links from Adam so that if you want to explore some of the things he was talking about in those different sites, you'll be able to click in the show notes and get that info. But this has been a very full episode of Awakening Genius, and I hope you got a lot out of it. Have a blessed day. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Awakening Genius and that you feel closer to embodying your full creative expression. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Connect with us on social media at Awakening Genius. And if you want to go deeper into anything we talked about on this episode, you can go to awakeninggenius.club. This is Dijon. Much love. Peace.